Well, the further we get into this culture, um, the longer I live, fewer and fewer things are left off the table um, in terms of just public discourse, public conversation. Uh, fewer and fewer things are, are, are not inappropriate to talk about anymore. So sexual immorality is flagrant today, so much so that secular authors refer to our culture as pornified. Even one of the forbidden topics of, of politics and religion are now up for discussion in many circles. Um, after this last year, it's hard to not talk about politics. Um, and even, if you, even if, if you are talking about religion, as long as you stay in the realm of what's true for you, and you don't start to impose that on anybody else, that's okay even to talk about. But what happens when we start talking publicly about personal accountability for wrongdoing? What starts happening? What happens when we label that failure or weakness as sin and as sin against a holy God? The conversation gets awkward. Sometimes it's met with anger. Uh, and it's almost always shut down in a, in a hurry, isn't it? Well, I remember watching a really jarring example of this uh, a few years ago on a CNN interview. I'll probably describe this. Many of you have probably seen this. An NFL player, Benjamin Watson, was being interviewed around an essay that he had written about the, the problem of racism after the Ferguson shooting. Have you guys ever seen this video? His essay that he had written went viral, and CNN, I guess, wanted to talk to him about it. Well, I didn't know anything about Benjamin Watson, but for context, he's a professing believer. And toward the end of the interview, Watson was asked about what we can do on a day-to-day, -day, individual level about the problems surrounding race and racism. And I'll never forget what he said. Right there on national television, he said, the issue, quote, is not really skin, but sin. And again, I didn't know he was a Christian, so my jaw kind of dropped. And I was like, what? And he went on for about 30 seconds straight, without any interruption, to monologue on how sin against God is the root cause of racism. It's the root cause of all the aggression that they see happening, playing out on the world stage. It's, it's the root of all the evils that we see today, all that we're plagued with. And then he said that believing in the gospel of Christ is the only way out. I mean, he was just like unapologetic right there on, on national television, CNN, no less. And then like all of a sudden, he green screened. I mean, it was just, you know, gone. And the lady that was interviewing him, she kind of like went down and she was like, oh, just like that, we lost him. And again, I can't, I can't read motives, right? But you can read tone. <laughs> and it was pretty plastic. But anyway, assume the best. Conversation was over. To her credit, she didn't have a whole lot of time, and, and this NFL player was kind of going on and on about sin and the gospel. He was starting to launch. But they cut him off. They didn't even wrap him up. They went and said, oh, yeah, she didn't, she didn't stop him and bring the conversation to a, a, a close. They just, shh, off air. But 
I think even my shock that this man talks so explicitly about CNN is telling, isn't it? In fact, I was more shocked that he continued as long as he did talking about sin than I was that he cut him off. I was kind of ready. For, I was like, well, okay, they're going to pull the plug any second now, and he just kept going on and on. And that's because, culturally speaking, we are in a clash of worldviews. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but we are. The Western Judeo-Christian heritage is giving way in our country to, or arguably has already given way in our country, to a secular humanist worldview. And it's a worldview that, among many things, it idolizes human freedom and autonomy at all costs. At all costs. One writer put it like this. He said, generally speaking, modern Western culture is moving away from the idea of personal failure and responsibility. Apart from breaking laws, in which case the state declares the guilt of transgression, the state does, apart from that, people ought to be free to act as we see fit, indulging our every whim and desire. We live in a culture that is dominated by a worldview in which its highest value is the freedom to fulfill our own desires. I love this statement. To claim that some of those desires are sinful or wrong in any way is really the only sin that can be committed today. I thought that was a telling statement, and it's tragic. It comes with incredibly destructive implications for the society in which we live, but it does not surprise us, does it? The enemy of humanity seeks to deceive us about sin. Satan and the world system that follows him tries to convince us that we are autonomous, that we are not really accountable to anyone. And yet, according to Scripture, sin is our existential threat. Sin is what separates us from God, our Creator, who is the only source of all true life. And we can't pretend it's not there. We can't relabel it. We can't take away our responsibility for our rebellion against Him, try as we might, as human beings. We can't just say, boy, He doesn't exist, and then try to live accordingly. But Satan and those who follow him would have us think so. They deny sin and they pursue anyone who would proclaim an opposite message to that. But sin must be dealt with if we're going to have fellowship with God and fellowship that's restored, fellowship that's maintained. But you might say, well, how? Well, if you've been with us so far in our study of 1 John, you know that he's writing to address these very themes. So you can go ahead and open to 1 John. He is writing to address this theme of fellowship, fellowship restored, fellowship maintained, how you know that you have it. John's church was rattled by some false teachers, previous members of the church that had left. And they were teachers who claimed that they had an intimate fellowship with God. They claimed that how you lived wasn't as important as receiving the anointing, as they called it. Teachers that minimized and, and then outright denied their sin. They denied guilt and moral responsibility for their sin. 
And all this errant teaching had begun to cause the faithful to wonder if they really did have fellowship with God. So, John starts his letter trying to give assurance to the church, to his beloved saints, the saints that were, that were rattled, and they weren't sure where they stood with the Lord in light of this false teaching. And he wanted the church then and us tonight to know that, that they really do have fellowship with God, and also by extension, they have fellowship with each other. He's writing to teach them how to deepen that fellowship And he wants them to be able to discern the false teachers and those who say they know God, those who say they're saved, and yet they live and talk in ways that deny it. So we saw last week that John gives us a message that we must embrace by faith if we're really going to have true fellowship. So we saw that last week. He gave us a message that we must embrace if we're going to have fellowship with God. We have to know, according to verse 5, We've got to know and believe that God is light and there's no darkness in Him. Look in verse 5, chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So as light, God shines His truth into our darkened lives at conversion. Our sin is exposed. We come to Him in repentance and faith. And as the light, he illumines the way back to fellowship. He he charts the path out, the light of life. And if we really are in fellowship with this radically pure God, this God who is the God of light, purity, truth, our lives will come to slowly resemble his. You can't step out of the shadows and remain in the shadows at the same time. That's his point. So John says the second way that we're really assured to know that we have fellowship with God is when we consider the evidence um, as we look at our lives. So he gives us, in the rest of this really first section of John, 1 John, some evidences to consider as we, as we look at our, our lives. <clears throat> and he outlines a couple areas he wants us to look at, and the, the first being how we live. So look again at verse 6. He says, If we say that we have fellowship with him, that's God. While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So walking is important. Walking, that's a metaphor for your life. Walking, you're either walking in the light or you're walking in darkness, and that's an evidence of your fellowship with God or not. We could say it like this. Are our lives lived in light of his truth? In light of his light, if you will, or totally void of it? Your day-to-day decisions, how you, what you choose, how you live, what you value, is it shaped by truth? Or do you just do what you want and come on Sundays? What is the trajectory of your life? If we really are in fellowship with the God who is light, then our lives will come progressively step by step, to reflect his light. Or to say it in John's terms, our lives will reveal that we've experienced the cleansing effect of Christ's blood, that that's really happened. But what about our ongoing sin, right? Is John saying that we can't sin and be in fellowship with God since God is light and we have to walk in the light if we're going to be in fellowship with him? 
If I sin, then, does that mean that I, I must not really be saved? Well, like we said last week, John's answer to that is no. John's going to put an exclamation on that tonight. John doesn't want us to keep sinning, but he's realistic. He knows our sanctification is progressive and that it won't be fully complete until Christ comes back. Rich mentioned this earlier. He alluded to 1 John 3, 1 John 3, 2, when he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So we're God's children now. We've been granted that. But what we're going to be in in perfection and glory hasn't, hasn't, hasn't yet appeared. John knows that our growth is progressive. And he says, but when we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So he knows it's progressive. And one of the, the, the primary evidences that you are walking in the light then, catch this, is how you relate to sin, how you interact with sin, how you handle sin when it appears in your life. One of the evidences that you are in fellowship with God is that your sin comes to light more and more as you fellowship with the God of light. Does that make sense? You're not hiding it or you're not covering it anymore. Like, that's done. That's what you used to do as a dead man. You used to cover your tracks, but not anymore. You want it out. You want it out in the open. You want to be honest about it. As you walk with Him, you... He reveals more of the depths of your sinful heart to you so that you can repent more profoundly and grow in His likeness all the more. So tonight, we're looking at another, what we'll call, evidence of life. So how we live is what we looked at last week. And then tonight, we're looking at how we handle sin. John puts before us this central question. Do you confess sin? Or do you cover it up? And this is one of our central concerns. It's the first step of fellowship, if you will. It's our first step of entering into fellowship with God for the very first time. And it's our steps along the way of fellowship with God. How we handle sin in our lives. It helps us not only enter fellowship, but grow in that fellowship. Do we confess it or cover it up? So look with me. Let's, let's look at this, this entire text. I'll read it together, and then we'll, we'll work through it. Look with me in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So in this passage, how we handle sin or how we respond to it is paramount for John. 
it reveals whether or not we really know the God of light. And John's going to give us wrong ways and right ways to respond to our sin. He's going to give us some categories. And so for our sake tonight, we're just going to group them together. So first we'll look at the wrong way, and then we're going to look at the right way. And like I said last week, as we gain clarity here, our walk with God will be enhanced and deepened as we learn to respond rightly to our sin. So, just kind of keep this is overview, overarching, where, where this whole, whole section is going. So tonight, we're looking at how we handle sin in this passage by itself. So first, let's look at the wrong response. You could summarize this, this wrong response as denial. We deny our sin. Look with me again in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right, skip down to verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So you'll notice we skipped verse 9. And it's, verse 9 is bracketed by these two, these two uh, claims of sinlessness. Okay? And so it's bracketed, so that means verse 9 is going to really stand out. It's going to be, the, it's gonna be the, the, the climax, if you will, of those, those three verses. So the wrong response is a denial of sin, so, or a claim to have no sin. A claim to have no sin. So... What exactly is, is claimed here? So we're going to ask a few questions and try to answer those as we, as we work through this passage. <clears throat> so you heard, it, you heard us read it, verse 8, verse 10. There's essentially two related denials of sin here. And they're likely being made predominantly by the false teachers, those who had left the assembly and were trying to influence the church. So as part of their sort of whether it was, it was this <laughs> overt in their parading around the fact that they don't sin or just functionally how they were living, uh, this was part of their, their dogma. We don't know a lot more, we don't know much more about it uh, than that. But what we do know from the letter is that these false teachers, despite what they claimed, these claims of sinlessness, they were obviously sinning. Like it wasn't just like, mm, maybe they're in sin. Like, well, they, are, they are clearly sinning. John's going to go on to say in chapter 3 that their lives were characterized by unrepentant sin. This sin is demonstrated most clearly, he will say, in their lack of self-sacrificing love. Again in chapter 3. He'll go on to say that they were selfish and they loved all the pleasures the world had to offer. Right? This explains why they were not very sacrificial in meeting needs of others with their resources, again in chapter 3. And beyond that, it's clear that they love the approval of the world, in chapter 4. They weren't humbled by their sin. They didn't even seem to take issue with their sin. They didn't call it transgression. They definitely didn't call it lawlessness. So that was sort of their attitude, and they were claiming to either not have sin, as we see in verse 8, or not to have sinned, in verse 10. 
So what was going on? Well, they had likely redefined their sin. Or they had relabeled it. They explained it away. They likely even blamed their clearly selfish and destructive behavior on other causes. If someone were to confront these folks, they would blow up. Or they would shift the blame. Or they would defend their innocence. Or they would explain their behavior away. In a word, according to John, they denied their sin. That's what the claim of having no sin and having not sinned means, in, I think, in this context of 1 John. So, to help, help this stick a little bit better for us, let's think through all the various ways people can deny their sin. And I think it's important for us because even as Christians, we can be tempted toward these kinds of denials, even if we're in the light. So let's ask this next question. How are people tempted to deny sin? And I'll just I'll throw a couple categories out here for you. Uh, the first and probably most common, well, I shouldn't say most common, but a sadly common one, is just we ignore it. We deny sin by ignoring it. Sadly, most human beings respond to their sin just just by pretending it doesn't exist. Pretending nothing is wrong before the Lord or others. So just think of, maybe this has been you in the past, the roommate who blows up at his friend or her friend, and the next day pretends that nothing happened. Right? It's like, duh. Are we going to talk about that? The husband and wife who argue day and night, they never resolve it, they live in a chilly relationship for the next few days, and then they move on even though nothing gets dealt with. That's ignoring sin, and that's a form of denial. That's saying it doesn't exist. We minimize our sin. Human beings are great at minimizing sin, and it's a form of denial. I'm not angry. I'm just irritated. We minimize when we acknowledge there's a problem, but we downplay the sinfulness of it. You get that? We minimize when we, we, we'll kind of acknowledge that there's a problem, like, hey, I know, I know that there's something some wrong happening, but is it really that sinful? It's just a little white lie. What's wrong with that, right? I mean, like, who doesn't lie? To err is human. Not really. To err is fallen human, fallen humanity. But we'll talk about that later. Okay, I'll just amend that quote. I actually read an article from Psychology Today that encouraged folks to reduce their perception of the evil of the seven deadly sins. Serious. The author encouraged that moderation in these sins, so not full indulgence, just moderation in sins, was actually beneficial for humans. It was good. It was good to be a little bit envious because it makes you work hard, you know, to like be successful. But don't be like too envious because it'll burn your life down, you know. That's minimization, okay? Like that's saying like, yeah, 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 okay, let's just have a little dose of sin. Or, okay, that's kind of funny. Maybe none of you will write a letter for psychology today or an article about that. I hope you, hope you won't, okay? Don't do that. But we might say something that's like 
in conversation. It's searingly hurtful to another person and sarcasm. And we're like, dude, I'm just joking, you know? This is why are you offended? Just, just having fun. So what are we saying? My sinful speech isn't sinful. It's acceptable because it's funny. You shouldn't get hurt by that. That's minimizing, which is a form of, of denial. All right, so just a couple ways. Another one, blame shifting. Blame shifting. Placing blame, and by the way, ultimate responsibility, on someone or something outside of yourself. Placing blame and ultimate responsibility on someone or something outside of yourself. If someone else confronts you and you're quick to point out the sin in their life as a reason for not being exposed yourself, like that's blame shifting. It's a form of covering your sin. We say things like, well, he made me so angry. Think about that. He made me so angry. Where's the blame? It's on that person over there. We're gonna, and even though that like maps onto our experience 100%, like, hey, I'm standing here, minding my own business, Joe comes in the room, makes that boneheaded comment, provokes me to anger, right? Like, I'm angry now because of what you said, Joe. And I wasn't angry before, so you made me angry. That like maps on our experience, doesn't it? But it's not true. Joe made a comment, and you responded to that comment in anger. So it came from your heart. That's what Jesus is actually going to say. So we shift blame. We say, he made me so angry. That's a shh, blame's going over there. It echoes the first human couple. It was the wife you gave me, Lord. The devil made me do it, right? We hear that. I haven't had my coffee yet, okay? Yikes, why are you blaming the black water? I just really had a hard last few years. Right? What are we saying? We're saying it's not my fault, not really my fault. I'm not the perpetrator. In fact, I am the victim. Ultimate culpability lies elsewhere, not with me. And that is a form of denying your sin. Uh, here's another one. Relabeling. Relabeling our sin. This is very similar to the other, uh, the other things. So if you, like, if you like sit down and think about this later, you can be like, where's the difference? Here, that's actually a form of blame shifting or minimizing. Yeah, you're right. But this is helpful just to think about it in this category. Relabeling sin is just calling sin by a different name. So, kind of like minimization, but you're slapping a different label on it. And some of the most classic examples of this, most sinister, are when we reclassify biblical sin as a biological disorder. Okay? I'm not saying there aren't biological disorders. There are lots of them. But when we reclassify sin... Biblical sin as a biological disorder. And I, I brought the, the DSM-5. Anybody know what this is? 
This is a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fifth edition, so DSM-5. And it's from the American Psychiatric Association. And it is credentialed, and it is thick, okay? And this DSM-5 often leads us astray. The man who worships himself and is full of pride is diagnosed with, I kid you not, narcissistic personality disorder. Okay? Like in a list of disorder. Narcissistic personality disorder. Which they define as someone who has a, quote, pervasive pattern of grandiosity. A need for admiration and a lack of empathy. End quote. It's worth, I mean, I know you probably just don't have like a DSM-5 on your shelf, um, unless you're a psychology major, but it is pretty interesting to read this thing. They go on to actually a really helpful, definite, like, description of somebody who's proud, right? Incredibly insightful. They just call it a personality disorder. They go on to classify this disordered person as someone who believes they are special, in quotes, like they, they actually quote it, special, has a sense of entitlement, exploits others, is often envious and arrogant. And this is, this is just relabeling at its finest, right? So rather than saying someone is full of themselves, in pride, an idolater, they say they have a narcissistic personality disorder. And it's damning. But we do it too. And there's just so many examples. I was just taking off the, taking off the front burner, maybe in my personal life. Think of the burnout language that we use. Burnout. I hear this all the time in pastoral ministry. Instead of admitting that we have pursued ministry in the flesh or without proper motivation, we say we've burned out. We invent labels all the time for things that the Bible calls sin. Why? Because we want to deny it. We don't want the culpability. We don't want the responsibility on our backs. And so these are just some of the ways, guys, that, that we are tempted and that people all around us every day are just fulfilling this text. They are denying sin. Evading consequences. Even as believers, we're tempted, and we can often fall prey to die, denying certain sins in our lives. But if somebody is habitually doing this, if somebody's habitually denying their sin, what does this reveal? That's the next question we need to ask. What does this show? This shows something. John's about to tell us. Inspired speech. Initially, in verse 8, he says, if we're doing this, we are self-deceived. We say we have no sin. Verse 8, we deceive ourselves. When we're confronted with the light of truth, and yet we, or any other human being, refuses to acknowledge the sinfulness of it, our sinfulness, we are only perpetuating the deception that we were born into. 
That's what it means to be self-deceived. We're deceiving ourselves. We're doing the deceiving as deceived people, right? We continue to recycle the lies. We further entrench ourselves in our own blind justifications of our sin. We continue to explain away why we're so depressed. We continue to explain away why we're so angry. We need to explain away why we're so anxious and self-absorbed without reference to sin. Without reference to personal responsibility. And so we're self-deceived. And not only are we self-deceived, John says, but we're also devoid of the truth. Devoid of truth. Verse 8. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He means that the truth is not governing the inner life of the individual who denies sin. Truth's not in there. It's another way of saying that lies are operative in their inner person. I.e., not the truth. Truth's not operative in the inner person. Then down in verse 10, he's going to give us yet another revelation about those who deny their sin. He says we actually, if we do this, we accuse God. And in fact, my little heading is a little milder than what he actually says. He says, we make him a liar. Him being God. We make God a liar, down in verse 10, if we deny our sin. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Meaning, we aren't now just deceiving ourselves, but we're on the offensive, accusing our perfectly truthful creator, the thrice holy God, the God who has never once lied, by people, we're the accusers, the people who are consumed in the inner man by lies, by the way, we accuse him of deceit. How so? Because throughout the entire scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, God has revealed to us that we are sinners. Through and through. Genesis 6, every thought of the intention of man's heart was only evil continually. It's like chapter 6. If you rewind even back to chapter, I don't know, 4, 5, somewhere around there, you got a brother killing another brother? Not good, right? And that's just the beginning, that's the start. Then you got a worldwide flood. And then you got more people sinning after that. And it's just, it's sin from day one. You have them getting out of Egypt, going into the wilderness and worshiping a golden calf right out of the gate, breaking the commandments before they're even cut. Genesis to Revelation, humanity are sinning, sinful through and through. Ephesians 2, we're dead in our transgressions and sins. That's his claim against us. When we deny our sin, we are saying, you are lying, God. Your assessment is not true. That's a huge deal. And finally, John says, similarly, that we are devoid of his word. So we're devoid of truth. We're devoid of his word. If we deny our sin, his word is not in us. Verse 10. 
That's another way of saying the truth isn't in us that he just said. Christ's gospel message is not governing our inner person if we are denying sin. So, obviously, John is painting with really dark strokes here. And it's not a pretty picture. But that's the reality of those who claim to be without sin, as the Bible defines it. They cannot have fellowship with God because their sin stands in the way and they won't admit it. And even for us as believers, sometimes our fellowship is hindered with the Lord because we're hiding sin. Maybe you need help, but you fear man too much to make it known. Perhaps you're weary in the battle and you've begun to wonder if something really is as sinful as the Bible says it is, because it's just so hard to stop, right? But don't hide it or reclassify it. That is not the path to life. So what should you do? Well, John's answer is profoundly simple, and it's incredibly hope-filled. He tells us in the rest of this passage what the right response, or maybe we could say responses, are, or should be, to our sin. What are these right responses to our sin when it's exposed? And really, there's, there's two, and they're, they're tightly related. The first is confession, verse 9. John says, if we confess our sins, so here's the positive. Instead of denying, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like, that's so simple. Like, very helpful and packed full of encouragement. John is saying simple, honest confession. I love that. I love the freedom of this, and in particular of what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, make yourself better. Atone for your own guilt. I'll make you suffer a little, and then I'll be happy with you. That's not what he says. But even though he doesn't say that, we sometimes operate like that, don't we? When we're under the weight of our sin, often we try to what we call self-atone. We try to make atonement for ourselves. It's not Jesus. What do I mean by that? Self-atoning is simply punishing yourself in some way in order to feel better about yourself afterwards. To pacify God's anger. We're tempted toward this when we realize we've sinned. Maybe the Lord's exposed a deep-rooted sin in your life. And you immediately and frantically kind of like rush to fix it. Like, i got to quick fix this thing. It's like you notice there was some lettuce in your teeth and you try to quick pick it out before anybody else notices. You might feel like you have to prove yourself to God that you're really repentant or that maybe he's mad at you and you need to let him cool down a bit before you go to him. And All of these kinds of ways of thinking are forms of self-atonement, trying to make atonement for yourself before God. It essentially amounts to a denial of Christ's atonement for you. I know that sounds alarming when we say it like that, but we've got to realize that's what's happening when we respond this way of like, fix it, myself. And it's important to note that this response is also rooted in pride. We say, I was perfect before this. Now I've got a problem that I can see, so I've got to quick fix it so I can get back to being perfect. 
But instead, we have to realize that we were never good, that what God has exposed in our hearts isn't even the half of it. We desperately need mercy from him all the time, atonement from him all the time. We can't atone for ourselves at all. Only he can provide what we need. We want to address the sin, but we don't want to do it apart from this important step of confession. Apart from appealing to him for sheer mercy. So instead of self-atoning, the Lord simply says, come to me and admit it. Just come. Own it. It doesn't mean that there won't be consequences in this life. Sin is horrible. And we often experience consequences for sin. But his arms are open in love toward you as your father. So what is biblical confession? You need to think through that. What is, what is, what is biblical confession? Is it just mouthing some words about sin and kind of moving on? Well, here's the essence of confession. It's simply this. We take full ownership of sin. We take full ownership of sin. Well, we're convinced of the sinfulness of sin. We're convinced of its evil, and we agree with God's assessment of sin and our sin. We also agree with where it came from, where he says it came from, which is our hearts. Nothing else, okay? My circumstances did not cause my sin. This is fundamental. Okay, so if you're new and boundless, this is key. Circumstances do not cause our sin. People don't cause my sin. My own heart generated my sin. The circumstances merely apply the pressure. They provoke. The Bible uses that terminology. But they're never the cause. Jesus tells us that all sin bubbles up out of our hearts in Mark 7. So, again, I know we got a lot of new people. We'll, we'll just flip over there real quick. Mark 7. Pharisees thought that they were defiled because they were eating with unwashed hands, or that maybe Jesus was, but Jesus turns that around and says, verse 21 of Mark 7, for from within, notice this language, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. You get the point? Where does it come from? According to the Lord that you profess. Your heart. Your heart. That's where all that evil comes from. All these evil things, verse 23, <laughs> come from within. Not that roommate. Not that parent that's hovering over you. Not the circumstance. Not the hard test. Didn't make you anxious. 
You responded to the hard test with fear. Out of your heart is where it came from. This means, then, that we are all completely responsible because all sin comes from within us. Doesn't mean that people don't sin against you. That's hap- that happens. Doesn't mean you're not a victim at some point. You are. But how you respond to that is, is on you. It's coming out of your heart. They will be held responsible for their sins against you. But your, your sins, all the things that you're going to be held responsible for, come from out of you. Our circumstances may tempt us to sin, but we do the sinning ourselves. And if you're still on the fence about this, the great foil to us is Jesus. When he was crushed by his circumstances, righteousness came out of his heart, not sin. That's because our circumstances or our backgrounds or our genetics are not the ultimate cause of our sin. Our hearts are, according to our Lord. And when we own up to this and we repent from making excuses about our sin, we are in the realm of biblical confession. It's that simple. And we all know by experience that confession of sin can be quite a challenge, right? (laughs) We're like professional blame shifters. Like, it's like we could put that on our resume, you know? Why is it so hard? Well, in a word, it cuts against the pride in our heart. I mean, it just, like, the sh- a sharpened knife that just goes shoo, right through every excuse we would make to, bam, you are the man, or you're the woman. You're responsible. Pastor Jerry says, Jerry Rag says that confession of sin is not an easy spiritual discipline to practice, even though it's simple. The very thought of it grates against the pride stored away in the hardened pockets of our hearts. However, the only way to deal with the hubris that hides sin is to humbly get it out in the open through confession. And this kind of admission is extremely humbling. But get this. This is encouraging. This kind of confession is at least half the battle when it comes to fighting sin. At least half, maybe more. Half the battle when it comes to fighting sin in your life. Why is that? Because this kind of humble admission drives us to the mercy of God as our only hope. We can't hope in any of our own righteousness because it's not there. Like we're, <laughs> You can't pretend it's there. It's not. I'm fully responsible. We don't just say we come to the cross empty-handed. We know it painfully by experience. God has proven it to us through the repentance and confession process. And so it's, it's liberating. It, it cultivates the kind of humility that we need that puts us open-handed to receive the incredible grace of God. So what does this look like in practice? Do I just confess to God? Do I confess to God and others? Do I go go down the street to a confessional booth? Like what? How does this work? Well, we certainly confess to God. The scriptures are full of confessions in real time. It gives us a feel for what the real confession sounds like. We hear what they don't do. We hear what they, they do say. Psalm 51 is the classic confession psalm. So if you haven't read that before, go there. 
It's where David publicizes the kind of confession that he prayed after he committed adultery. It's huge. Psalm 51. <clears throat> Daniel 9 is another great example of confession of sin. We covered that weeks ago in our, in our Daniel series with Pastor Brian. And what's incredible about these passages, you're going to hear none of the forms of denial that we mentioned earlier. None of that's there. In these examples, the saints are clearly confessing their sin to God, and they take responsibility in prayer before Him. But just raise another question. Did you ever confess sin to other people? What about to, to others? Well, yes. <clears throat> in a few circumstances, and again, I'm going to speak generally here, so I would definitely encourage you to, if you have a particular question, to get some counsel. But generically, if you sin against somebody else and it has affected the relationship, so horizontally, it's affected the fellowship. We might use that, that key word in John. We generally encourage confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation to happen. And again, that's case by case, but norm, normatively, that's, that's definitely what we would recommend. It's also encouraged that you confess sin to someone who can actually help you through it, right? So, one of the ways uh, that we grow is through discipleship or discipling, and so it need to, for that to help, for us to help each other, we have to be honest. You know, we can't, we can't out of fear of man, hide these things, um, because you're not going to get, God's designed the church to, to, to work together in this process of conforming us to the image of Christ. So confess it to a pastor or someone who's discipling you. But beyond this, we don't really find in Scripture examples of people are airing out their dirty laundry just kind of indiscriminately um, in the name of confession to other people. So uh, don't do that. Uh, it causes lots of problems. You know, the guy going around confessing all of his lustful thoughts to the girls he's lusting after, don't do that. Okay? It's problematic. There may be case scenarios when, when a public confession needs to be made in the church. Like an elder commits some public sin everybody knows about. He's the, we've got to come before the congregation and confess that. But those are rare, and they're always informed by other biblical principles. Okay? So just, if it affects a relationship, probably best to, to confess that. Um, and then if it's, if it's trapping you and you've got, uh, you need some help, definitely, definitely get that out in the open. Don't think you're to be a Lone Ranger Christian. And John says if we, if we fess up, we own our sin to God, there's some incredible promises that we can take to the bank here in this verse. So what are, are some of these incredible promises that are tied to confession? Flip over. I'm, in, I'm still in Mark 7. I don't know where you guys are at. Go back to 1 John. What are these promises? Well, he promises forgiveness full and free. You see that? Right there in the text. Verse 9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Total forgiveness, by the way, is what's promised. All our sins. Even for the most heinous offenses, the most defiling bitterness, the most audacious arrogance. Forgiven completely. And not just forgiven, he says, but cleansed as well. No spot or stain remains. You're unblemished. And all because of owning up to your sin and coming to Him for mercy. Nothing you did. 
And then if you're tempted after you confess, like we sometimes are, if we're tempted to wonder if he's really going to forgive us, look at how he describes his character in forgiveness. John says that the Lord is both faithful and just to forgive. What does that mean? Well, it means that the Lord's faithfulness is on the line. His justice is on the line if he doesn't forgive someone who truly confesses. That sounds crazy, but it's true. If God doesn't forgive, then his justice is in question. How so? Because as we'll see in a moment, he's already poured out all of his justice, all of his judgment on his son on your Savior. He would be unjust to pour out His wrath on you too if you're found in Christ. And the point of John saying it this way is He's not unjust. He's never been unfaithful and He never will be. You might be thinking, well, hang on, wait a minute. Aren't we already forgiven? Right? Like I thought... Christians are already forgiven. How does that work? Well, admittedly, as we're working through this passage, John does not give us lots of categories and nuance here, right? If you confess your sins, forgiveness, right? Obviously, when we confess our sins the first time, forgiveness happens, it's in one sense, a complete forgiveness. Like, there's nothing lacking in that. Like, we are completely forgiven. And we typically call that judicial forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness. Meaning you're transferred from enemy status to child status now. Certainly, when we confess our sins at this point, this initial point in the process, there's total forgiveness in that judicial sense. But the context of this passage implies that there's an ongoing forgiveness that's needed for continued and deepened fellowship with the Lord. The light is constantly exposing, and as a result, we are constantly confessing, right? We typically call this not judicial forgiveness, but familial forgiveness. There's categories that we come up with to kind of make sense of these these things as we try to bring it all together. There's been a breach in the family relationship, so to speak, It doesn't mean you're out of the family. It simply means you need to own up to what you've done. And if you want to text on this, Psalm 32 describes a period of time when David withheld confessing his sin from the Lord. He had sinned, and he withheld that. The Lord made him miserable. Not because he didn't love him, but because he loved him. He made him miserable, he crushed him even, until he confessed. He says his bones wasted away in that text. I mean, it's just like a pitiful picture of a man who's just like kind of rebelling against God. But it, it gives us a category of this, this believer who's withholding sin. He wasn't an unbeliever, but his unconfessed sin did have an effect upon his fellowship with his Lord. It didn't alter the Lord's love for him, but it did clog up his experience of the joy of his salvation. So, Simple confession rather than a guilty hiding it is what the Lord requires and desires from us. 
And so what we must do, this is key, so what we must do to deepen our fellowship. And as we do, this reveals that we really do belong to him. And it's the first step in, a, in the path of obedience and transformation. But I want you to notice one more re- response as we wrap up tonight. We're going to end on this response. I want you to notice where John leaves us. Beyond confessing, are there any other ways that we should respond when we sin? I think John would say yes. Now, I'm calling this appropriation, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that. So you have a confession and appropriation, or if you want to put another phrase out beside of that, looking to Christ. So we confess our sins, and then we appropriate something to ourselves. And it's Christ. John wants us to lift our eyes away from ourselves when we sin, after we sin, to Christ. He wants us to receive assurance by looking not to ourselves first, but to what the cross has accomplished. And that's where he leaves us in this, these paragraphs when he's talking about how we handle our sin. Look with me in chapter 2. And I think chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, go with this previous paragraph. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's going to become clear through the rest of this letter that John does not want us to sin. But he knows that we will. Because we're not glorified yet. Perfection won't come until Christ returns and we become like Him. So John says, if you sin, verse 1, if you sin, believer, if you sin, you have to know something and you have to remember it. What are some of those things you have to know? You've got another Christ, your advocate. You've got another Christ. He is your advocate. An advocate is a friend that's high up who can represent you in court. And in this case, it's the most important court known to man. It's God's own courtroom. It's his heavenly throne room. And Christ, as your powerful and influential friend, he advocates on your behalf to the Father. But how? He points to himself. Notice also, you got to know, not just that he's your advocate, but he is our righteousness. That's what he points to as your advocate. He is the righteous one, not you. In yourself. And this verse implies that his very righteousness is credited to you. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Why does he call himself that? Because... We're unrighteous. We've been cleansed from our unrighteousness, but He is the righteous one. It's credited to us. His righteousness clothes you like a warm winter coat. And as as He advocates on your behalf, He points to His own righteousness He earned for you, and He gave to you freely. And not only does He advocate with His righteousness on the basis of His life, right? But He also advocates to you on the basis of His death. 
It's the third thing you've got to know is that Christ is our propitiation. He's our advocate. He's our righteousness. He's our propitiation. According to this text. And propitiation is an incredible word. It means that Christ is the wrath absorber. God's righteous wrath, as we saw on Sunday, as a manifestation of his goodness, was coming right at us. And there was nothing we could do. It was a tidal wave that was growing and accruing with all of our sins and our sinful condition. Nothing we could do except experience it. until our Lord stepped in front. Until he absorbed the tidal wave. And absorbed it to the full. There's no spray getting past him on you. Change the metaphor. He drank the last drop of the cup full of God's wrath. The cup he asked to be passed from him in the garden, he drank it for you. And what he left behind was only blessing. It was a new creation for you. Because of his death, if you confess your sin and you entrust yourself to him, you will never, ever experience any of What a glorious thought, right? So if John were here tonight, I think he would urge us to appropriate this into our lives. That's why I'm saying appropriate it. As we confess, don't just merely confess and then just get up from your knees with nagging doubts about God's love for you, nagging doubts about whether or not you'll have to pay for that particular sin, nagging doubts about how God feels. No! Go to Christ! He says this to you tonight to remind you of these things. Appropriate his death, even for the sin you've sinned a thousand times. I get it. I know the doubts. But appropriate his death is the first step toward transformation. Appropriate all he's accomplished for you and get up after that confession, living in the joy of that appropriation, the joy of that confession. As John would say, you have an advocate. Now live like you have one. So this is the path. It's the only path to fellowship with God. To real fellowship. Obviously, a lot of people claim they have it, but this is the only one to real fellowship. The path is a confessing life. A real Christian is not a perfect one. A real Christian is a refreshingly humble and honest one. Right? So don't hide your sin. If you've only ever hidden your sin, that's all you've done, tonight can be the night where you step out into the light. You step out from that shadowy dungeon into God's great field of mercy. So don't be afraid of the exposure. That's a satanic tactic. Exposure is good. It's painful. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. But it is gloriously good. And it's liberating. And it's full of joy on the back end. And it's the only path to true life. Let's pray.
Father, what a refreshing text this is. Convicting for sure, because we have all these slimy ways we try to continue to evade responsibility for our sin, even as believers. But you know all those things. You ordained this message for us.